Hey y'all, I'm Jackson Neal, Houston's Youth Poet Laureate, and you're listening to Myth City, where writers and storytellers gather to talk about legend, lore, and the legendary mess that is Western literary canon. Myth City, because decolonizing is fun for all ages. Today we have our youngest guest, and because I am technically a youth poet laureate, I am extremely excited to feature this teenage voice, Adam Mack is a poet and artist that I grew up alongside on Houston's premier youth poetry slam team, Metaphor Houston. A big ol' goof and the light of my heart, Adam is one of the most tender and brilliant performers I have ever encountered. Today, Adam is gonna amaze y'all with the Chinese myth of Changun, a discussion of poetry as a place of protection, reclaiming the cowboy as a literary device, and share her sparkling poem on the beauty of kinship. Here is Adam Mack. Once, there were ten suns placed in the sky. Their light was so strong that they scorched the earth as people slowly burned to death. They continued to shine upon the planet until one day an archer, Hu Yi, used his arrows to shoot down nine of the suns. The earth was saved, and the people praised Hu Yi for his actions. As a reward for his bravery, the emperor gave Hu Yi an elixir that would grant immortality to whoever drank it. Though Hu Yi wanted to become immortal himself, he loved his wife Chang'e too much to live without her, so he locked the elixir away at home. One day, while Hu Yi was out, his student Pang Meng tried to seize the elixir from Chang'e. She refused, and in order to prevent him from taking it, she drank it. She then rose towards the heavens, choosing to live on the moon so that she would continue to watch over and be near her husband. After Hu Yi discovered what happened, he began to leave Chang'e's favorite fruits and pastries out beneath the moon as a way to remember her. This was how the moon festival was born. Hey, my name is Adam Mack. I'm a queer Vietnamese-American poet, performer, and writer from Houston, Texas. My work has been featured on Lou's Poetry Hour and Houston Public Media. I'm currently pursuing a degree in writing at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I brought this myth in because it was, amongst other Chinese myths, something that my dad had told me as a child. The myth of Chang'e, the moon goddess, as well as um, the Zodiac Banquet were some of my favorite ones growing up and storytelling has always been a form of preservation of memory for me, which is something that's really important to my craft. Also, as someone who is named after a moon deity, uh, Chang'e has always been really resonant with me. I was a writer at a really young age, and to encourage that, my dad would read stories to me at bedtime, and sometimes when we ran out of books because I read really fast, he would bring his own stories in, or my mother would bring Vietnamese fairy tales in. And something that he told me as a kid was uh, the myth of Chang'e. He would make warm milk and toast raisin bread, and we'd sit in bed and he'd tell me stories when I was around six years old. These were always told verbally. These were stories that he'd been told as a child or that he'd heard back before he'd immigrated to the United States. I think coming from someone who is the child of two immigrants who come from a country that has less of a reliance on written history. Storytelling has always been something that was verbal for me, from hearing my parents tell me bedtime stories to the way that the women in my family gossiped to each other over the phone or would gather around the table and talk while eating. Even simple conversation is a form of storytelling in oral history. 
my role as a writer makes sure that those stories continue to be told. I am older, so I'm not necessarily hearing those stories at bedtime anymore, but because I'm known in my family as someone who tells stories, who's known um, for the way that they preserve memory, my family members feel encouraged to tell me more about their lives or to recount the history that they've experienced growing up. Sometimes when my dad feels comfortable enough, he tells me about the things that he experienced while he was immigrating to the United States. He was a refugee in Thailand very briefly during the Vietnam War, and he would tell me about how he used to sleep on the roof of the hut that he was given, and he would listen to the sound of soldiers beat other refugees. And he would tell me about how he and his best friend chose different countries to immigrate to when it was their time to leave the camp. And it's just things like that that make me believe in the power of storytelling. Thank you for being so vulnerable with that. That's a very intimate part of yourself to share. I think stories are also a means for us to like access strength. For me, whenever I hear some of the myths that I was handed a lot of times, it was I was like through the Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. And while I don't particularly latch on to all of that, I think what amazed me was always the, the like concept of miracle. Right. Right. That like like these heroes and these figures were able to perform um, like miraculous deeds. Like the idea of having powers that are beyond what we consider the normal human body, I think is a really, really gorgeous way to like access hope and possibility. So I wanted to ask, in the myth of, remind me how to pronounce it, Changa? Yeah, Changa. Changa. Uh, do you find parallels in the way that this story was presented to you and in the stories that you like encounter in terms of historical documentation? Um, either like in the stories of your father, the, the uh, like, domestic life of just like living in Houston, existing around like your family in a Houston setting or just like being with your friends? I feel like the stories that I was told as a child sort of give way to the origin for a tradition in in my cultures. Um, And the way that perhaps my father or my mother tells stories of the way that they came to live in Houston is also reflective of that. My father's best friend immigrated to Norway and is currently working as a martial arts officer there. Um, But because his best friend lives in Europe and a lot of his other friends currently live outside of the United States, he encourages me to travel. uh, And he's always been very welcoming of me having a very diverse group of friends, whether that's gender, sexuality, or ethnicity. I think it's also encouraged me to be more open and accepting of other people um, because it's a reminder of the way that my father has learned to live as well. I'm interested when you mention sexuality because I like, and please stop me if, if I'm like coercing this narrative, but I like read a kind of like queerness in Chang'un insofar as um, this person, like it is right, like a heterosexual relationship, but, but like the figure of, of masculinity, like, being used as a tool to to like perform miracle right. and like using one's capabilities to to like 
break open, like literally the heavens, I think is a really interesting way to navigate, like how people who exist, like such as myself, exist in like fluid and moving genders are able to like take the strengths of both and like inhabit them and to perform miracle of that. Yeah. I'm curious um, if you find like queerness in the myth and if that manifests in like yourself or your work and if it doesn't, right? Like, like if you, if you find that you need to separate those things somehow. I think in a way I do identify some sort of queerness in that myth. Um, there are um, a multitude of versions of that myth. And the one that I chose specifically was this one because it identifies Chang'e as the, um, as the hero in the story. Um, in other forms of the myth, um, she's shamed for drinking the elixir or she's punished for gaining immortality over her husband. And in this one, she is identified as a positive light for the actions that she took. Um, and the origin of the Moon Festival shows her husband dedicating his love to her um, as a result of that. Um, and I think I've, I feel that queerness coming from, as you said before, like the the miracle associated with masculinity and how Chenga sort of rebukes that and becomes a miracle in herself. Um, that feels queer to me in the sense that it personifies queer strength. So. Also, like, becoming immortal and then going off to the moon is Powerful. the most gay-ass thing <laughs> I've ever heard. And even in, like, my name, Alinda, the name of the... Um, Aborigine moon deity. He becomes the moon after he's killed by his two wives, purely so he can plunge the night into darkness as like a form of pettiness against them. <laughs> and it's just like my favorite thing ever. That's incredible. I think selecting a specific form of a tale definitely is self-affirming in the way that like this is the form of this story that I identify with the most. And it, it sort of reminds you that you don't have to stick with a very specific narrative. Oral history, because it's passed down, can gain or lose details. It becomes something else each time another person handles it. And when it's your turn to take the story, um, you choosing a specific form of it is another form of reflection of yourself. How do you find this manifesting in your own in your own work as a writer? I've taken a lot of inspiration from stories that I've heard or from the stories of people around me in order to shape my own work. Um, I feel like the method of storytelling has played a large role in the way that I form, in particular my poetry. I write a lot about the people I know and the way that their influence has affected the way that my story writes itself. I think for a large example would be the way that um, my friends have experienced uh, sexuality. As someone who is a queer and is surrounded by a lot of people who are also queer, watching the people who are around me grow in their own queerness and then figuring out their own gender identity or sexuality uh, has really shaped my own story. And it teaches me to be stronger. And it reminds me that um, the narrative is not something that has to be confined to a very specific set of rules. Um, and that in breaking them, we become the story. That's really, really gorgeous. And it reminds me of when I was talking to Ayo a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I was noting with Ayo was that um, 
there's sometimes a fear about incorporating um, mythologies or stories that we that are precious to us because they become more vulnerable. Right. Um, like a lot of times when when indigenous myth is documented by um, it is like documented on paper, it's done so by the colonizer and it's, and right. it's done so as a means to like exemplify their particular narrative. Mm. Right. So they will like document an indigenous mythology and say like, do you see how because they don't believe what we believe that they must be like less intelligent. Hmm. Right. And so I wanted to know as you harness these myths and also just harness like love and people in your life that are very precious to you, um, how do you protect them on the page? Do you feel like you are bringing them into a space so that whiteness or heteronormativity is unable to look away to say that on the page, this is the story and this is a story that is mine and, and that you are not able to deny or rather to say that they only exist on the page and you're not even able to come into the space. I think the way that I write is more so as a form of protection in the sense that any sort of heteronormativity, whiteness and any sort of negativity that might come towards them is not allowed in that space at all. Writing for me has always been a way to manifest love. And if I'm writing about someone that's important to me, that always comes first. That love is always the most important thing when I'm writing. And so I learned to write unapologetically. I'm not afraid of expanding beyond what is necessarily the standard in a white society or a Western society. I learned to write in my own voice without the fear of people misunderstanding or perhaps taking me as someone who is a burden upon white society. Someone as a poet who is known for being outspoken and loud and boisterous, I think I've also just had to combat that sort of criticism throughout my career and even outside of my career, just being a person. I've always been criticized for not necessarily being a stereotype or being someone who's like a quiet Asian girl. And so that manifests itself in my writing in the way that I love those around me. I think the idea of remixing the canon is something that's really interesting to me. Um, There is a lot of hypocrisy in the fact that white canon acts as a silencer. Storytelling is something that should give a voice to others, and yet um, white canon often goes around and steps on the voices of hundreds upon thousands of millions of people. Um, And if we want to take that back, I don't think it's necessarily the right way um, to do that if we just continue to silence um, the white canon the way that they've silenced us. Um, I feel like it's important to take back the white canon by making it something that's ours, something that would completely piss off the people who created the canon in the first place. You know, just completely hijacking the boat. Do you have any examples uh, in your own work or others where you've seen someone hijack the boat really well? For me, I'm thinking about uh, Ocean Vuong's particular rendition of the myth of Telemachus, Mm -hmm. which is a story about um, Odysseus's son. But in the poem, he specifically refers to the speaker's father as Ba. 
mm-hmm. right? Like, like reclaiming, um, yeah, 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 like using his own language and his own familiar relationships to understand this myth. Uh, so yeah, like your own work or others, like reclaiming the canon and remixing it. This is more of a hijacking an entire genre. Um, I think specifically of the comic Skim by Jillian Tamaki and Mariko Tamaki. It's a traditionally drawn comic. And I've seen that the comic industry is largely dominated by white men. And for these two Asian-Canadian women, they have drawn the comic in uh, traditional Japanese style. Um, The main character is Asian. And I think that is a way of them spitting in the face of white cartoonists who have dominated the industry and left very little room for people of color, women of color, queer women of color to expand into that sort of space. Narrative-wise, Skim is, no spoiler, written about a Asian-Canadian girl who is exploring, amongst other things, um, the relationship she has with those around her, um, white people around her, and she is also experiencing um, for the first time the idea of queerness and what it means to be queer um, in our sort of unconventional means. Uh, She falls in love with a female professor, but that in a way challenges a space that's usually predominantly white in the fact that it's bringing in a lot of ideas that aren't necessarily challenged by white male cartoonists in in the comic industry. I started recently exploring something that isn't necessarily the idea of writing what you know, which is, I think, sort of a strange sentence to say. I am an Asian American, and so I grew up with a father who is part Chinese and part Vietnamese and a mother who's fully Vietnamese. I'm um, fully immersed in Asian culture, and so things that are like Western or um, white-dominated, I don't have too much familiarity with, but something that I do have a lot of familiarity with is the Wild West. As someone who is Texan and grew up going to the rodeo, being surrounded by cows, whenever I was in elementary school, we would run the track and longhorns would be on the other side of the fence and kids would crowd up against the chain link fence and wave at the cows. But I always felt like cowboys was like a concept that was dominated by white people, especially white men. And I felt like that was inaccessible to me as a writer. But recently I just said, I don't care. And I started writing about that. So I recently wrote a poem um, in which I take back all of those narratives. Um, But as I was researching, I was thinking um, about during the time of the Wild West and I was wondering what Asian people were doing in the, during that time, especially Asian Americans, because um, the Wild West happened um, roughly about the time that, say, like the California Gold Rush was happening, and you know that brought in a lot of Asian Americans, um, brought a lot of Asian immigrants to the United States, and so I was thinking, like, there's no way that there wasn't an Asian cowboy, but then if you like Google it, there's nothing. And and so I like pushed a little harder. And the only thing that I found as I was researching that there were like Asian people serving as cooks or serving as like, um, like assistant handlers uh, to 
parties of cowboys and ranch hands. And I wasn't satisfied by that because why shouldn't an Asian person become that lead role, become the cowboy, you know what I'm saying? And so I was like, let me write a poem where I am the cowboy because I don't care. Because if I was a cowboy during that time, a lot of people would be very mad at me. So I did not bring the cowboy poem, which is so unfortunate now that I'm here, but I brought something else. I brought a poem that was written after um, my best friend, who I wrote 30 poems for during National Poetry Month. And the one work that I brought today is called 02192000, which is written after um, her work 05092000 that she recited when she was featured on Houston Public Media last month. 02192000, after Ashlyn Stewart. I love you like air. I love you like water. I love you like 02192000. I wake up in the morning to white. Did we have the same dream? Did we see the same things? My body burrows in inquiry into the sheets, too cold to discern sand from snow. We are two feet and ten toes on different ends of the country. Will we ever know where we're going? One day. No. No, not at first. Sixteen. Eventually. Give it time. Maybe not. We whisper no. Mutter that our home is in such constant motion that we might never find our somewhere, but let's not be afraid. I say, we haven't yet learned how to let go. You say, don't leave the future waiting, so we don't. We grip each other in the dip of a sunburnt shore and let the water drown our uncertainty. Will we ever know where we're going? Maybe only in slumber. Too far gone to fool ourselves instead, broken down as woman, love, water, wave, oasis, warm, resilient, love, water, sun, sand, love, love, love. I wake up each morning to a premonition of longing. Did we have the same dream? Did we see the same things? We are slowly becoming each other again. Last night, I saw an island collapsing into itself. Last night, I saw an ocean still learning how to survive its dissolving. Last night, I saw the heavens reaching down into a wave, and from the foamy remains of salted daybreak, I saw you rising. City is brought to you by the generous support of Houston Arts Alliance Let Creativity Happen Grant, the City of Houston, the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, Houston Public Library, and Writers in the Schools. Special thank you to my incredible guides, Patricia Garcia, Lois Gallo, and Angela So, and the biggest of shout-outs to our producer, Andrew, the baddest sound technician in the game. I'm Jackson Neal. This has been Myth City. Thank you for listening.